No, okay. So here we go. Here's a real quick flyover of the whole of Hebrews. I'll let you know what Hebrews is about in one statement. Jesus is better, so persevere. Jesus is better, so persevere. We don't actually know who wrote it, um, but it's a man who reflected deeply on the Old Testament. And he saw in the Old Testament, with all of its foreshadowing and offices and sacrifices and rituals, uh, a pointing ahead to the days that they are in. And as he writes to a, a beleaguered church, a church that's facing an immense amount of suffering for their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, he reminds them that Jesus is better and so persevere. You see, one of the temptations that they were facing is to deny Jesus and go back to just being Jewish, and in doing so, they would receive the special protections in the Roman Empire that the Jewish people experienced. See, they were suffering, they were being imprisoned, they were being outed because of their faith and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so there was great temptation to simply just go back to following God in a more generalistic way, and so he picks up his pen, and in every way, he says that Stuff in the Old Testament that you read about, that you thought about, it actually points ahead to Jesus, and he is a superior fulfillment of that. And so if you open it up to Hebrews chapter 1, you see this incredibly theologically dense chapter that basically says Jesus is far superior to the angels. Far more so. He is the eternal son of God, and so he is superior to the angels. You turn the page, and you see that Moses, the great initiator and giver of the covenant, uh, or the mediator of the covenant in the Old Testament, that Jesus is a greater Moses. He's more significant, and Moses merely pointed ahead to him, that he is the true and greater high priest, that all of the priests in the Old Testament were simply pointing to the mediating role that Jesus would have, that he is the, the true Sabbath rest that we long for. He invites us in to the kind of deep rest that we experience in our souls, that he is the all-sufficient and perfect sacrifice, that all of the Old Testament sacrifices that they were given were simply pointing ahead to this great day when Jesus would come and the light bulb would go off and they'd be like, oh, that's what it's about. He's the true and greater sacrifice. And so all of these things, all of these roles, all of these rituals introduced in the Old Testament, Jesus is better, so persevere no matter what the suffering is. Persevere no matter what the cost is. And so because of that, the book of Hebrews is evergreen in its interpretation, isn't it? And its application, that whatever we face, whatever cost there is to following Jesus, we can realize that whatever we're tempted to put our trust and our hope in, Jesus is better. So we can persevere in faith. But can I ask you, what is faith? I mean, we talk about faith all the time. As a, as a Protestant church, we would say that, that we are saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, in faith alone. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And that is the essence of our salvation. But, but often we don't define what does it mean to be or to experience faith. What is biblical faith? And what Hebrews 11 answers for us is that very question. What is faith? What does it mean to believe and to trust in God? And rather than just defining it for us, it tells us story after story after story of an Old Testament saint and their faith that we can look to as an example. Their faith that we can ask ourselves, do I trust God like they did? And so what we're going to do, I, I got a just disclaimer. 
Hebrews 11 is a long chapter. The reason that I didn't have someone read it ahead of time is because it takes like seven minutes to just read through. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do kind of a flyover of Hebrews chapter 11. And and I tell you that because every single one of you is in some way going to be disappointed because there are nuances to the faith of the saints that we look at in Hebrews 11 that I'm not going to be able to touch on. I'm simply going to fly over, give, draw one or two principles from their example of faith, and then the cumulative effect of all of that is to see what faith is. And so faith is this, faith is this, faith is this. That's what we're going to do. And so I will inevitably disappoint some of you when you're like, oh, I wish you would have highlighted this about Abel's story, or I wish you would have gotten into Enoch a little bit more. I'm not going to do that because, well, actually, we only have one service, so I can just keep going, can't I? Oh, oh, Dean. <laughs> Next time Pastor Swap comes up, he'll be like, we good. We don't need to do that. So let's dive in, and I'll show you. And, and um, it teaches us the nature of faith, that in light of these stories of the faithful saints in the Old Testament, it then calls us in Hebrews chapter 12, which is where we're going to end, to run the race of faith by learning from their examples and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. So that's what we're going. What is faith? And then how can we run our race with perseverance, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus while also looking at their great examples? All right. Hebrews chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the confident trust that what in what we do not see with our eyes, physically speaking. Faith sees more than what our physical eyes can see or our physical ears can hear. It is grounded in a deep-seated hope in our souls. What is that hope? That there's a purpose to things, that we were created with a purpose and that life, even with all of its pain and brokenness, has meaning. See, one of the great tensions that we need to somehow reconcile in our life is how can we live in a world filled with such beauty and majesty and wonder and splendor? And how can we also at the same time live in a world that is so deeply broken? One minute we're staring at Lake Superior, seeing all of the thousands of tiny little sparkles as the sun hits it, and we're filled with a sense of majesty and wonder and awe. And then the next moment, we we open our phones and we see the massacre that took place in Israel just yesterday. How do you square that? Is there an all-powerful, all-good God and those things are both simultaneously true? How do we make sense of that? Well, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We need to see with something more than simply our physical eyes and hear with something more than our physical ears. It is a faith, a belief, a trust, a hope in something bigger than ourselves and our own reason even. It is the confident trust in what we do not see with our eyes. Verse 2, for, it is, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Faith is not a new thing in the New Testament, but rather what the people of God have always experienced with their God. Faith is not new, but what the Old Testament saints had. We're not the first, even though Jesus has come and we see more clearly, we are not the first to experience true saving faith, but the Old Testament saints did as they looked ahead to the promises of God. 
And so not only did they do that, and we are not alone, but we actually can learn from their example of what faith is. Verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith is the belief that God created the world with all of its implications. Do you know that the most controversial verse in all of the Bible is the first one? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, because if that's true, then there are a whole lot of implications that go along with it. If that's true, then every event that happened, everything that takes place, our starting point is not us and our reason, but rather God and his reason and his purposes. Meaning when something happens that is outside of our mind, our first instinct should not be, God, where were you? Or God, how does this make sense? But rather the assumption and the understanding that God is the creator and therefore God is the owner of all things, therefore it does make sense, even if our minds don't comprehend it. Faith is the belief that God created this world with all of the implications that that associates with. The eyes of faith sees everything through the lens of God first rather than ourselves Notice these things are starting to stack up. We'll review them at the end, but if you're a note taker, there's going to be a lot of slides today, okay? Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Faith is trusting God with our best You'll notice here that the author of Hebrews assumes that we know the stories of these Old Testament saints in greater detail. He simply refers to Abel and his offering as opposed to Cain and his offering and then draws a lesson about faith. And so if you're not familiar with the story, what Hebrews 11 does is it provokes you to go and read it. It provokes you to go and see what is going on in their story that, that they see so quickly and so uh, earnestly as they can make these applications, but maybe I don't see the nuances of that. And so if you're unfamiliar with the characters that exist, it's not explained here in Hebrews 11, but rather you are invited to go back and read and go back and read and become familiar so that when they refer to these things, you're like, oh yeah, I know Abel's story. He offered to God a, a sacrifice of his flock and God received that, but Cain offered something of the, the fruit of the field and, and God didn't accept his See, Abel is showing us what faith looks like by offering the best, a more acceptable sacrifice than his brother. And so as we stack these realities, we learn that faith is trusting God with our very best, recognizing that he owns it all. And even though this led to Abel dying, being murdered in jealousy by his brother Cain, he still speaks to us. His example still provokes us and shows us that faith offers to God our very best and it is pleasing in his eyes. Verse five, we continue. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And so we read that faith is pleasing to God. It involves walking with God and we're to look to Enoch and his story to see this. Now, if you go to Genesis chapter 5, which contains the story of Enoch in like one or two verses, you will read a very familiar cadence through that chapter of Scripture, just like we do in Hebrews chapter 11. But the cadence in Hebrews chapter 11 is by faith, by faith, 
by faith. By faith, we see it over and over again, and we're to look and see these people as examples. But if you go to Genesis chapter 5, the cadence is different. Does anybody know what it is? And he died. 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 And it's this long genealogy of the impact of what sin does in this world. That no matter, some walked with God, some didn't. But they lived a certain amount of years and they died and they died and they died. And that cadence is only broken up once and it's by Enoch. If you go down to verse 24 of Genesis chapter 5, all of a sudden you read out of the blue, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him which probably brings up a thousand questions that the text doesn't answer, right? Well, what happened? We're to imply that Enoch didn't die because his faith was somehow pleasing to God. And all we know about him is that he walked with God and was spared the agony of death. This has This caused a lot of apocryphal books about Enoch to be written that try to fill in the gaps because it's it's so tempting to do so. What exactly about his story? How did he walk with God? And what can we learn from that? And we simply don't know. Because those apocryphal books are not actually authoritative. They're just guessing. And they're using Enoch as a way of like deriving authority. That's how a lot of fake books in the New Testament did that. They'd be like, the Gospel of Peter. The Gospel of Barnabas. It's like, yeah, they were written 300 years later. You're just attributing it to that so that we think that you know what you're talking about. And that it's authoritative. Uh, just, just an aside, almost every year around Easter, like Time Magazine or someone will come out with, we found a new gospel. And the reality is we, we didn't at all. We've known about it for about 1,700 years and rejected it from the very beginning. So, so just be discerning about that. Uh, that's free, by the way. Um, Enoch walked with God and it pleased him. And so faith is pleasing to God and involves walking with God. It involves a relationship with God. It involves an intimacy with God in which we're talking with him, even though we don't walk with him like Adam did in the garden in the cool of the day. Verse 6. This is probably as close as it gets to defining what faith is for us. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is the belief that God exists and that God is good. That God exists and that God is good. If you want to please God, you must have faith. And faith has two foundational elements. God is true. He exists. He's the creator. And that he's good. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. And if you think about it, it is exactly what Adam and Eve lacked when they sinned. They knew that God existed. I mean, he had walked with him in the cool of the day. They saw him with their eyes, not with faith. I mean, their faith was sight. He was just there. But they became blind to his goodness. They believed the lie that God was stingy and that he was withholding something good from them. That if they really wanted to live, if they really wanted to enjoy this life that they had been given by God, they needed to reach outside of God's command and determine right and wrong for themselves. See, at the, at the core in their hearts, they stopped believing that God was generous, that God was good, that he had created everything and his first command to them was freely eat. And enjoy what I have made, enjoy what I have created. They, in turn, actually chose to look at what God had withheld from them. And their conclusion, with the help of the enemy, was, God's stingy. He's not good. Which, if you read the story, 
you realize how absurd that statement is, right? God didn't owe us anything. And yet up until this point, it's nothing but good. Freely eat, enjoy. Look at this garden that I made for you. Make the rest of the earth like this garden. That's your job. And rule over this earth by obeying my word and trusting me. Now, it makes you kind of wonder, why in the world was that tree there? I mean, dang it. God, couldn't you have just made the, the tree of life and they would have been eaten from that? I mean, you didn't forbid that. Why create a tree that you are going to forbid to your people? It was this, so that we would have to relate to God in faith. See, we were given the freedom to choose so that we would be invited to relate to God in faith, which believes that he exists and that he is good, a, a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. At the root of all sin is either the dismissal that God actually exists and cares or the dismissal that God is good. Every time we break a commandment that God has given, we are in essence saying, God, you don't know what you're talking about. You are stingy and you don't actually want me to have fun in this life. In order to truly live, I need to go outside of what you have determined is good and right and I need to snatch it and take it for myself. Every sin. And I say this as a fellow sinner who gets duped into believing that crazy logic over and over and over again. In contrast then to that is the eyes of faith which believes that God exists and that he's good and a rewarder of those who seek him. Therefore, God's commandments and his word are to us an invitation to truly live, not a no-fun God saying, I don't want you to do anything that would actually cause you to smile. But how often at the root of all of our sin is a failure to believe that? Faith is the belief that God exists and that God is good. Do you have that kind of faith, that believe that God exists and that he is good? Do you believe the word of God to be an invitation to you to truly experience life. If not, you don't see it rightly. And you need your mind and your eyes to be changed with the eyes of faith. See, sometimes faith calls you to do things that don't always make sense on the surface. Consider then the example of Noah and Abraham in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he, com- he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. What do we learn from these examples? That faith is obeying what God asks you to do, even if it doesn't initially make sense. For instance, Noah was called to build an ark, and for, eight, or for over a hundred years he did it. And while he was building the ark, it didn't rain. Imagine how mercilessly he would have been mocked. As he builds this thing, he's like, God's wrath, God's judgment is coming, a flood is coming, and they're like, Noah, it's never rained before. You crazy. To build that boat with your sons, knowing that the rain was coming, even though no rain had ever fallen. 
And yet Noah had the eyes of faith that obeyed and trusted the promise of God, whether or not he had seen it before. Or Abraham, to leave his land and to trust God, to give him a home and a legacy. Abraham went to dwell in a land, but he never possessed it. He lived like a sojourner there in tents. Neither did his son Isaac or his grandson Jacob. They all had the promise that God would build their name and give them this land as a home. But they didn't experience it themselves. In the same way, we see that God is preparing for his people a home. And it ain't here. It's in heaven. More on that in a few verses. Verse 11, we see the beautiful example of Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, he was a hundred, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. If you've ever walked the journey of infertility, you know the pain of the monthly disappointment. Imagine experiencing that for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, and lingering, and, and, and some of those years, not even the monthly disappointment, because it ain't happening. Those systems shut down. And yet lingering is this promise from God that you'll conceive, and you trust him with it. And God delivers that to you when you are 90 years old. 100 for Abraham, but 90 for Sarah, you know. Faith is obeying what God asks you to do, even if it doesn't initially make sense. It causes people to spend 100 years building a boat and 90-year-olds thinking they're going to get pregnant. That's crazy. Faith is trusting that God can do anything, even the impossible. Faith isn't all a blind leap, but it does trust God with only what he can do. But even this far through the story, you see that there is this building tension that what happens, what do we do with these Old Testament saints that God has given them these promises, but he didn't deliver in their lifetime? See, they're commended to us as an example, but like, how do we square that reality which is what verses 13 to 16 address. These all died in faith, and those who are checking your watch, don't worry, it'll pick up. Okay. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Faith, then, is the belief that God will provide a home for us in eternity. This earth, with all of its brokenness, is not our home, but it is our home. It's flawed, and God is preparing a home for us, and this is not it. And yet it is it. Because in Revelation, we see the picture of our home, not as us being caught up and going to heaven, but rather heaven coming down to this earth that has been renewed. Us not descending into this spiritual-like plain, but rather getting new resurrected bodies that are no longer tainted by sin, living on this earth the way that we were created to initially. 
Faith is the belief that God will provide a home for us in eternity. Do you believe that? That God will provide a home for you in eternity. Faith looks at that promise and says, yes, and I'm going to bank my life on it. Yes, and I don't need to get all of mine now. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. When God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, he was asking Abraham to lay on the altar and give back to him everything that he had promised. Because in that was not just the child that he loved, but was actually the fulfillment of all of the promises made to him up until that point. They were to rest on this child. Descendant, name, people, land, all of them rested on Isaac. But Abraham, despite all of his failures early in life to not trust God, had learned. And at this point, he trusts him with his future. It doesn't make sense, but he thinks in his mind, you know what, God can raise him from the dead. God can do anything. Look, he's here. He believed and he offered up Isaac, believing that God would give him back because he had promised. Just as Abraham believed that God might raise the dead to save his son, so now faith believes in a God who is not just able to raise the dead, but who has. Has raised the dead for us, a sign of our future in Jesus, that Jesus defeated death for us through the resurrection. This is a historical fact. And so we trust in a God who raises the dead. And now, through the, the story of Abraham and Isaac and through the story of Jesus the Son, we know the heart of God, who, like Abraham, was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loved, for us that you might trust in his promises. The only difference in the story is that God the Father did not stay his hand, but allowed his son to be the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins so that we could receive all of the promises that he had made in Jesus. Verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Faith is trusting God to fulfill his promises, even though they may not happen in your lifetime. Now, we've already hit on this aspect of faith over and over and over again, because it happened over and over and over again. But these men, Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph, trusted God even though they didn't immediately receive what God had promised. So too, faith invites us to persevere through seasons of silence and seasons of waiting and seasons of having your hope disappointed. Faith doesn't waver but trusts God even when it doesn't go well. By faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. 
Faith is trusting the wisdom and the reward of God versus the fleeting pleasures of sin. If you're going to go through the Old Testament saints, then you've got to at least include Moses, one that God sent the law through. But what's drawn out of Moses' life is interesting. He chose the mistreatment of being among God's people rather than enjoying the riches of palace life and what they called the fleeting pleasures of sin. He realized that the reproach of Christ is what it was said. Being among God's people was greater treasure than all the treasures of Egypt combined that they possessed. Remember, this is written to a people who are contemplating whether or not the suffering they're enduring at Jesus' hands or at Jesus's, because of Jesus' name is worth it. And the author says, look at Moses. He didn't choose wrongly. He recognized where real and greater treasure is, and he cast his lot in among God's people. Notice here how sin is painted for us. It's called the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here's the thing. Sin is filled with pleasures, or you wouldn't do it. If sin wasn't any fun, you would never be tempted. But notice how honest the Bible is. It calls them the fleeting pleasures of sin, because even though they bring pleasure, that pleasure is fleeting. It's like trying to grasp water in your hand. It just kind of all falls through. Choosing to identify God with God and obey God by faith is saying, God, you are the one who offers real and true treasures, and so I choose you. This is not willpower, but rather fighting the pleasures of sin with a greater pleasure, namely God himself. You are battling sin, and the best way for you to actually have victory over sin is not with greater willpower, but with a higher pleasure. Some of you guys are battling sin all the wrong way. You're trying to gut it out. You're trying to like grit your teeth and bear it and just not do it. The best strategy for you to fight the pleasures of sin is with a greater pleasure. Namely, knowing Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of your own, but that which comes through faith. Enjoying the blessing and the beauty of communion with God where you experience pleasure that is not fleeting. And then the gifts of God simply become the gifts of God again. They're not God themselves. The author looks to Moses and says, yes, you could deny Jesus and your life might be easier. You might get out of some suffering, but you would be missing out on what life is about. Faith is realizing what God offers us is the good life. We're going to keep going really quick. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Faith is trusting in the sufficiency of a sacrifice that God's judgment might pass over you. Just as Moses and the people of God kept the Passover so that when God saw the, the blood of the lamb sprinkled over their doorposts, doorposts, he would pass over in judgment those who were inside of that house. So now we as the people of God trust in the all-sufficient greater sacrifice of Jesus that when God sees our life covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, his judgment passes over us because it's already fallen on his son. Faith trusts in what Jesus has done for us, that God's wrath might pass over us and his mercy fall on us. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Faith is trusting in God to rescue you from slavery. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. Faith is trusting God to fight your battles 
for you. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Faith is trusting God with your future. Rahab risked it all, the rejection of her people, her very life, because she knew the power of God that was, she knew the power of the God of the Israelites, and she wanted to be on his team when things got real. And she was not only received as faith, but received by her faith as a, even though she was a prostitute, but God actually gave her the high honor of being one of the women named in the genealogy of Jesus, the Savior himself. It's a beautiful story of, of, of prostitute to princess. Verse 32, we see that the, the pace picks up. It's as if the author gets to this point and is like, I don't even know how to pick the next story, but I'm out of time. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And then it turns. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and daves, in dens and caves of the earth. If ever there was a incentive to pick up a Bible commentary and say, who is, it? Who is this referring to? Who is this talking to? It's, it's fun to chase all of the threads of the prophets and the faithful people who conquered kingdoms and experienced the worst kind of brutality that you can imagine. But what's crazy about this, and I don't have time to connect all the dots for you, is that both groups are commended for their faith. Both groups are described as these are men of whom the world was not worthy. And so what we learn from them is that faith is trusting God with the most decisive victories that you can imagine, and faith is trusting God when the results of things don't seem to go your way. These were men and women of whom the world was not worthy. How do we apply that in the, to our lives? Well, some of you will experience and taste the victory and the power of God and have story after story after story of God's power and work in your life. Others of you will experience a lot of frustration for being faithful and wonder, did I do it wrong? Be careful. Faith is trusting God with both the victories and the defeats, giving him the glory and deferring to him. One of the things that I've learned in human history and in my own life is that failure is a lot easier test to pass than success is. Did you know that? Success is way more difficult to pass than failure. Because failure reminds you and me of our need for God and the insufficiency of ourselves. But, but success, we're often tempted to think, dang, I'm good. God sure is lucky to have me, isn't he? Look at how I demonstrated great faith. The gospel of Jesus, and I got this from Tim Keller, sets you free from the results so that success doesn't go to your head nor failures go to your heart. 
Those of whom the world was not worthy experienced untold success and untold failure, and they're both commended for their faith. Chapter 11 concludes with this, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All of these people didn't get to see Jesus. And he writes to these Christians that are contemplating whether Jesus is worth it, and he says, but you have Your faith has seen in a clearer way, and so be encouraged by that. In light of the suffering, faith looks to the future with hope and security. Let me just review really quickly all of chapter 11. Faith is the confident trust in what we do not see with our eyes. It is not new, but what the Old Testament saints of old had. It is the belief that God created this world with all of its implications. It is trusting God with our best. It is pleasing to God and involves walking with God. It is the belief that God exists and that God is good. It is obeying what God asks of you, even if it doesn't initially make sense. It is trusting that God can do anything, even the impossible. It is the belief that God will provide a home for us in eternity. It is the belief that God, or it is trusting God to raise the dead. It is trusting God to fulfill his promises, even if they don't happen in your lifetime. It is trusting the wisdom of God versus enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. It is trusting in the sufficiency of a sacrifice that God's judgment might pass over you. It is trusting in God to rescue you from slavery. It is trusting God to fight your battles for you. It is trusting God with your future. It is trusting God with the most decisive victories that you can imagine. And it is trusting God with the results when things don't go your way. Faith is trusting God. The belief and trust that God exists, that he is good, and that he rewards those who put their trust in him and earnestly seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what? So what? Well, the what is that in light of that, run your race with endurance. Run run your race with faith. Chapter 12 of Hebrews has these two words, or these two verses. Therefore, meaning, in light of what I've just said, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's all of chapter 11, let us, all, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter, or the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a race that we are called to run as Christians, a race that takes enduring faith. And the key to this race is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the originator and the completer, the author and the perfecter of this faith. And there are weights that we can pick up along the way on this race that we're not meant to carry, and there is sin that clings closely that can sidetrack us and cause us to stray off course. So in light of the testimony of all of these Old Testament saints, we are to run our race light by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one that is dependable. That we can endure suffering and shame because he did for the greater joy that was set before him. He did and he overcame. So just two questions as we close. Kind of questions of application. 
First, is your faith a biblical faith, or have you reduced it to simply believing something is true? Whether you put any weight in it or not. Which of these stories provoked, challenged, or inspired you to live out faith in your own life in a different way? Which example is helpful for you to remember today because it speaks directly to your situation? There's a lot to choose from. Second, are you running your race? One of the greatest distractions that we can have in our race is to take our eyes off of Jesus and focus on what God is doing in someone else's life. Do you feel me with that? God, why do they get to experience that, but I get to experience this? Was Daniel, the prophet who God used to stop the mouths of lions, more faithful than Isaiah, who history was said, who history says was sawn in two by the wicked king Manasseh? Well, no, he wasn't more faithful. Both men were faithful to the calling that God had placed on their lives. So what does that teach us? That means we should not be distracted by what God is doing in someone else's life to the point where we don't focus on running our race and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. I do that all the time. Don't you? God, look what you're doing in their life. Why can't I experience it like that? Why do I have to walk through this valley when it seems like everything they touch turns to gold. See, the minute I do that, I've taken my eyes off of Jesus, who has already demonstrated in the most profound and complete way God's love for me, God's heart for me. And I stop running the race. I forget that, you know what, God has different plans and paths for all different people, and some of us get to experience success in ways that are just crazy. Most of us are like, I want to sign up for that. But then when we look at these stories of suffering, we're like, "Ah, no no thanks. Here's the thing. We're not the author of faith. We we don't ultimately write our stories. We, We simply live in them, trusting in the Lord. And whether you experience great victory or great defeat, the charge for you today is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith and to run your race well. Notice I didn't say run your race alone, but run your race well. We've got each other. We've got the great cloud of witnesses that provoke us and challenge us and encourage us. But run your race 